welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 402. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your guest host, Drabblecast Associate Editor Sandra O'Dell. When Norm asked if I would like to host this episode, I grabbed the sow's ear by the horns and counted my chickens faster than an idiom could fall buttered side down. Then he asked if I would let him out of the cage, and I told him I'd have to think about it. Wouldn't want to rush into anything, you know. Let's get to know each other over a drabble, shall we? Our Drabble this week is called Sarah by Drabblecast Forum member Ford Benjamin, read by our own Uncle Norm. Here goes. My daughter held my hand as we walked down Mitchell Avenue. Her tiny fingernails dug carelessly into my palm. Are you okay, darling? Yes, I'm just thinking. About what? I feel sorry for the people who have to walk on that side of the street. She pointed to the east side of the avenue. Why? Because I don't think they know they're dead yet. They're still doing the work they did in their waking lives. They don't know. I smiled down at her, the simple innocence of youth. Maybe someday I'll tell her That's the living side of the street. Innocence, indeed. Well, Women's and Aliens Month continues with The Moving Stars by Premi Muhammad. Premi is an Indo-Caribbean scientist and spec fic author based out of Canada. Her short fiction has appeared in Analog, Pseudopod, Mythic Delirium, Automata Review, and other venues. Her debut novel is scheduled for a 2020 release from Solaris Books. She can be found on Twitter at at This week's story is read for you by Naomi Mercer McKell. Naomi has been a voiceover actor since 2004. She started her career in Los Angeles and has lent her voice to numerous projects such as the voice of Facebook's name pronunciation feature, Mass Effect 2, and her recent favorite, Imara. She's now living in Seattle with her husband and new baby boy. So, without further ado, we bring you The Moving Stars by Premi Mohammed. They had to knock me out to get her out of me, which was for the best. I was asking to be knocked out for quite a while by that point. Ugh, all that sweating and grunting and gritting teeth. I cracked a molar for heaven's sake. And then darkness. And then there she was. My daughter. Swimming up through the layers of gray light. A strange little pink fish of a girl that someone had placed into my arms. What happened? I asked. She got stuck. 
said one of the nurses, and patted my hand. Yeah, backwards and upside down, poor little mite. Sometimes happens with the first. But isn't she perfect? Of course she was perfect. What's her name? said someone distantly. But I drifted away again into the twilight. When I awoke, the general himself had sent flowers and a chocolate cake, protected under a clear celluloid dome like a flying saucer. I went with Daphne, and Robert didn't object. I had worried that he'd put his foot down as usual and insist on a family name, something our mothers had suggested, but they were all terrible. Terrible, he agreed, laughing. Augusta was domineering, Myrtle was too horticultural, and anyway, the kids would call her Myrtle the Turtle no matter how she looked. In the car, he said, we could have named her Frederick. What? My cousin Mary had a mix-up at the hospital a few years ago, and her little girl ended up named Mike. Nice, right? Oh, come on, I said, smiling uncertainly. They would have changed the paperwork. Nope. Once it's on a birth certificate, that's where it stays. Oh, please. You're pulling my leg. Would I lie to you? The other wives on the base dropped by and passed the squirming bundle between them, cooing, eating all of my tiny sandwiches. I watched them and felt myself torn between wishing them gone and wishing they would never leave. It was weird. Two years of hearing them whisper behind my back, hearing my name softly hissed like a snake under the porch. I mean, come on, as if I could not hear them or did not care. As if Robert's ultra-classified job with our alien visitors were some kind of soundproof shield between me and their friendly, averted faces. I mean, I wanted friends, but I could not unhear the whispers. Did you hear? She's never even, doesn't know how to. There's nothing. She straight out of high school. A pretty face, but... <sighs> That week, I shut down the robovac and the handy mop and cleaned with a vengeance, scrubbing and sweeping until I pulled my stitches loose. I mean, God, I bought clothes like theirs, forest greens, saturated stripes, grainy tweeds. I repapered the nursery in primrose yellow, a subtle pattern of stripes and flowers, spirals and suns. Between bouts... Aching, I stared out the window at the shuttles and the spiked clusters of Sollisk ships, adding butterfly light to the last moment, extruding long, dainty legs. Yeah, but of course one didn't without the special goggles, and Robert needed our only pair for work. Against the spring sky, they were no more than a smudge, a blur that made you rub your eyes, like one of the clear floaters that swims across one's vision. I thought of the movies Robert and I had half-watched while we were dating. The Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, Invaders from Mars. Oh yeah, we giggled and flinched and screamed at Dewey's drive-in. And I asked how they could still make these, when we had lived so long with real extraterrestrials. And he only laughed and tossed popcorn at me, as if I were a puppy that could be distracted with food. Maybe it was something so obvious he thought he didn't need to say it, but I never did figure it out. Maybe Daphne would one day. She was going to be smart, I could tell. 
measuring out the amounts for when she truly needed a hand. Her eyes weren't blue like mine, or hazel like Robert's, but a cinematic green, you know? The green of meadows, something a girl might run over in a twirly dress. Gloomily, I let the visitor say it. Oh, she's going to break hearts someday. As if to break it were the only thing they could think of to do with a heart. As if you could say that with a straight face to a baby. But I had nothing better to contribute to the conversation. I stopped caring about others' opinions when she was six months old. When everything changed. When, and forgive me for my disbelieving laughter, a sullusk went on Johnny Carson. Before the heap of tumbled blocks and broken glass on the couch even spoke, before Johnny so much as opened his mouth, I knew what they were going to say. The knowledge arrived as whole and complete in my brain as an unbroken egg, a smooth shell enclosing everything I needed. Look at this, my husband said somewhere, his voice distant and faint over the hammering of my heart. They just put a filter right on the camera. Ain't that something? I held Daphne to my chest and felt the flutter of her little pulse and thought, it's true, it's true. What they're going to say, it's true. Now what exactly are we talking about here, sir? Laughed Johnny, the audience laughing too, easy in their seats. Did you mean to say it's like a treasure hunt? Like Easter eggs? Folks, that's what we're talking here. Not hidden, the alien insisted, static crackling from its translator. No, I thought, not hidden. Not a treasure hunt. Only treasure. Stark and obvious on the sands, the only thing for miles. Like the play we did in high school, Treasure Island. So, an ambassador, but we don't know who it is? Johnny said. And I shook my head. I spread my fingers over Daphne's hair, the baby fine curls. It's her. It's her. It's you, little one. They did not say how we would know, and that's how I know. Because where else would this information have come from if it wasn't what they intended? Yes. The alien said. You'll know. On the screen, its angles blurred and ran with my grateful tears. It's her. It's her, I said. Robert, it's Daphne. It's our baby. The ambassador. He laughed. Wouldn't that be something, eh? It is. Sure, honey. Guess we'll just wait and see, hmm? Like winning the base sweepstakes. That reminds me, did you buy a ticket this month? He hated to be badgered about things, but I knew I would have to keep bringing it up. I told myself, it's related to his job, isn't it? I mean, a go-between for the scientists and the generals, the ones who seek to know the aliens and the ones who only want to know their technology. I mean, will they help us or blow us up? Robert made them sit down and talk about it. I wish I could take you to one of the labs, sweetie. You won't know what you're looking at, but it's a hoot to watch it all working. How would you know I wouldn't know what I was looking at? I asked once, and he laughed and laughed till he doubled over and did not reply. 
I was insulted, a little. He knew I was interested in the aliens. He knew I had read my dad's popular mechanics. It was more than a hoot to me. The day after the Carson show, I put Daphne and her buggy for a walk around the base after Robert went to work. All around us, the heavy ancient oaks and chestnuts heaved in a sea of tan and beige and brown and blush pink, dropping leaves heavy and fast on the sidewalks that crunched under our wheels. I waited for the clear, sharp fall air to pass through me and wash away whatever nonsense had come over me yesterday. How could I have called it knowledge? How could knowledge arrive from nowhere? That's not how science works, Robert would have said. Nothing like that drops from the sky. Except you, little ambassador, I whispered to Daphne. When would they come? When would they come try to claim her? When she was my age? When she was an old woman? Stooped with numbers and figures like scientists on the base? Just as I thought it, I saw Dr. Khan across the path from me. I raised my hand, and she waved back. A pale flash of palm. I fought down a sudden urge to wheel across the road and talk to her. What good would that do? She wouldn't laugh like Robert, but she wouldn't believe me either. No one would. But she had been there when the aliens made first contact at Runway C. Robert hadn't been called till the next day rushing over with his briefcase full of printouts and papers. He hadn't been among the first, but the second. I always wondered whether he disliked Dr. Khan for that, and yet he was courteous to her at functions. He had even danced with her at the Christmas party. She was walking away, her dark orange dress disappearing into the curtain of leaves. I gripped the buggy handle and hurried across the road. Dr. Khan! Her golden, peppered face was seamed from the center out, like bicycle spokes. Under silvery brows, her eyes were alert and black as a bird's. Hello, Daphne. Are we sleeping through the night yet, young lady? Soon, I hope, I said. They say let her cry it out, but... I trailed off helplessly. Did... Did you see Johnny Carson last night? She raised an eyebrow. No. They invited a sullusk. I... It said... Uh... Well, they have an ambassador on Earth. Not an alien, but a human. And... Fascinating, she said. They've suggested as much to us, without giving any indication of how they intend to select such a person. Naturally, we all immediately thought of the science group. Uh... An adult? Of course, she said, lightly surprised. Well, I... But but supposing they wanted to start younger. A student, you mean? I suppose that's possible. There are prodigies everywhere. Y no, younger than that, I thought. In the cradle. No, in the womb, where aliens do not belong. Well... I suppose they don't really belong anywhere in this world, but they're here anyways, and we can't send them away. They said we would know, but they didn't say how we would know, Dr. Khan. She chuckled. Well, their language is exceedingly complex, and seems to involve frequencies in a multi-coded super-linguistic syntax that we may never comprehend, hence the interpreter boxes. As for this ambassador... I'm sure it will take all of our collected resources to figure out who it might be. 
I mumbled something about not wishing to keep her from her important work. She bade Daphne and I farewell, separately. I always liked that about her. The other wives mocked her, but she spoke to babies, children, dogs, as if they were all at her level, all deserving of her respect. If I could have confessed the truth to anyone, it would have been her. She saw me accurately, as just another warm body on the base. Twenty-three, uneducated, a housewife, a mother, with nothing to contribute to the research or the project or the smooth running of the complex except to keep my husband fed and clean. As I walked away, my eyes filled slowly with tears. Well, what about it? I told myself sternly as I kept walking. What part of this can possibly be untrue? Remember what Mother used to tell you? It's not an insult if it's a fact, Sally. The weeks passed. A brief hot spell, a brief cold spell. I woke up one morning to hear what sounded like hailstones hitting the roof, but it was only leaves plummeting from the branches all at once, as if they had rehearsed it, like a flyover. And then fall was truly over, and it was winter. And something came over me, pinning me in place. A blanket so heavy and soundless I could barely hear Daphne when she sobbed in the night. I nodded at Robert when he spoke to me in the mornings while I made eggs, and the mouths moved on the TV saying nothing I could understand. But I still believed. At last, when the snow began to fall in earnest, Robert took me to the base doctor, who asked me questions I barely understood about things I understood even less. I nodded where it seemed appropriate. "'Do you cry more than usual?' he said, and I said, I feel like I've forgotten how. And he and Robert glanced at each other. We have to remove your breast, he said. And I said no. And he said yes. Yes, it'll be all right, honey. We have pills for this kind of thing. What kind of thing, I said. And they sent me home without an answer, with a little vial of red and yellow candy-like pills, like tiny apples and peaches. Robert bought glass bottles and rubber nipples in town, and I set up a station to scrub, rinse, and dry next to the sink. I'll leave this to you, he said. I don't want to break any of these. Of course, darling. I expected Daphne to hate the bottles, the strange shapes in her mouth, but she took it with her usual silent and dignified resignation, as if understanding that this is what it would take to grow up big and strong. The Sullisk, I explained to her, would approve. What about her was alien, I wondered. Would it ever be known? I checked with her every bath and diaper change, looking for the crown birthmark from fairy stories when I was a girl, for something luminous or sharp or otherwise strange. Was she jaundiced? Was it the color reflecting from the nursery walls? I asked Robert to use the car to go to town, to buy new wallpaper or paint, and he told me to wait until spring when the light was better. But he couldn't hide the look on his face. He knew I would not go on my own. My impulse to wander had, just as he once predicted, faded after marriage. The last truly impulsive thing I'd done was signing that register at the church. Now, on the last shreds of impulse, I mixed canned tomatoes in my meatloaf. I parted my hair on the left side instead of the right. Hmm... What remained of the girl I used to be was balled up inside me, compact and glowing. I thought of her 
like the Sullusk ships, which carry their energy outside of them like a spider's egg sac, a dense sphere filled with blue flame, unimaginably heavy. I felt like a ship stuck on earth, my spindly legs digging into the turf, and Robert still didn't believe me about the baby. The doctors visited, the wives visited, the doctors and wives visited together. We sat in the living room and played with the baby and the chill winter sun shone on the coffee table. Quietly, the doctor said I should think about going away for a little while. That the base, the proximity to the aliens, the guns, the tanks, the fumes was not good for me or the little one. She keeps bringing up some connection between Daphne and the aliens, Robert told the doctor. Could be you're obsessing over it, the doctor replied. You'll both feel better if you get away. Maybe stay with your mother for a little while. Have you met my mother? I wanted to ask. But I nodded instead. It's either that or Rocky View, said the doctor, to which Robert replied. Well, we'll need someone to look after the baby if she goes to Rocky View. Not necessarily, someone else said. They didn't say how I would go. They didn't say when. The appropriate paperwork needed to be signed. Robert might need some time off work. The shock, you see, of living alone. But that night, I stood in the nursery as the moon moved gracefully across the floor, time slowing, stopping, then speeding up, white light driving over the pale square tiles at my feet. Finally, I leaned over the crib and pulled my daughter into my arms and wrapped her in a blanket. Her heavy head lolled on my shoulder. She made small, contented sounds into the hollow of my neck, half-awakening. She did not sleep through the night just yet. None of us did, except Robert, who slept like a log. As I shut the front door, I heard the grunt and hiss of his snore, cut off abruptly by the clicked lock. Outside was bitterly cold and silent as a church. In fact, there was something holy about it. The quiet, the snow, the stars. In the dark, tiny blue motes whizzed past. Sullusk shuttles zipping between earth and sky. You could almost pray. Watch over me, I thought, even though they always said they didn't. I didn't have a plan, but once we were warm and safe inside the Chevy, I found myself not caring. Theft, I thought. It was Robert's car, of course. We had talked about buying me one of my own, but that was far in the future, when we would have more money, when the kids were older. What kids? I mean, did I sign up for more than one? When they weren't talking about locking me up. Yeah. Locking us up, I whispered to Daphne as we backed out of the driveway. Where will we go? What will we do? How will we live? I entertained myself wondering about these things as we glided through the gates and out into the dark countryside. How will we keep ourselves safe and secret? Fuck. God, you've really gotten yourself into it this time, haven't you? What were you thinking? Nothing seemed real in the black and white moonlight. I felt trapped in the television, whispering over the snowy streets to the music of the Twilight Zone. Next to me, Daphne was silent, 
staring out at the moving stars. In our new life, I would take her outside and sit her on the porch of our house. No, the balcony of our apartment. I'd need a big city to hide in and point out the precious few stars I actually knew. I remembered the parties in which drunken sciency big shots pulled me outside babbling about telescopes, measurements, diffraction gratings, and pointed at them with slurred letters and numbers. When some men got drunk, they fight. Others name the stars. I had never gotten drunk. I wondered what it would be like. The heavy car slewed on the slick roads. I wasn't afraid. The Solisk wouldn't let anything happen to the Ambassador, would they? They certainly hadn't so far. I watched the countryside roll by. Tiny dark houses with a single light burning on the porch. We stopped at a service station in the middle of nowhere, hours from home, with the car whining on its last nibbles of electricity. I had to honk for a long time before the station attendant appeared from the little steel shack. Rapid charge, please, I said. Yes, am He was young, maybe younger than me, and his white and red uniform was crumpled and grease-stained. The propped open door revealed the interior of the shack, lit with a single bare golden bulb like a candle. It looked for a moment like a library, the ranks of snacks and canned drinks inside glowing like shelved books. A large gray radio sat next to the cash register. I took Dacne into the shack, shivering even in the few moments of cold, and gave her a tour. Look, that's beef jerky, and that's a tin of motor oil. That's what Daddy's car needs to eat, along with electricity. The aliens gave us that. We were burning all sorts of things to make our cars just ten years ago. You'll have to know all this, darling. When the station attendant came back in, several things happened at once. He mumbled something about the charge. Daphne squawked into my ear. The light flickered, and the radio bleeped an emergency broadcast tone, followed by a gentle, urgent voice speaking about a woman with a name very much like mine, with a baby in a 1959 Chevy Bel Air. What a coincidence, I almost said. Probably kidnapped, carjacked from the Meyer Sullisk II military base, it said. If any information became available, please call the base directly. Emergency operators were standing by. There was a telephone on the wall, navy blue and cream enamel. The boy looked at the phone, then began to back towards the door. Wait, I said, but he didn't and I followed him out, trying to explain myself that I was not this woman. I am someone quite different, taking my baby to visit, let me think, visit my aunt, my maiden aunt in Connecticut. But he walked around the far side of the car and locked up the charger. Come on inside, ma'am, he said, coming around the car with hands outstretched as if guiding some strange dog. Let's, well, it's an awful cold night, and... And let's just wait for the police in here, where it's warm. He didn't dare touch me. The men around me often couldn't. It's the baby. Better than any shield. Better than a suit of armor. I easily dodged his outstretched fingers, took my handbag from the car, and walked away. My ears sang as if I were about to faint. 
a high, never-ending keen muffled by the pounding of my heart. Fear. Terrible fear. And something else. The snow was shallow on the flats, thigh-high in the ruts. I staggered and panted through the furrow fields, heading for the woods. What lie beyond there? I could not say. It was land I had never seen in daylight. Daphne was a hot bundle against my chest, her breath pluming into the air like feathers as I gasped and roared for breath, sank to my knees, and rose again. The other wives do fitness programs at home over the radio. The other wives eat cottage cheese on lettuce and grow crisp and delicate like fall leaves. The other wives and their other husbands. The others. The others who fit so neatly into their neat little lives and would probably flit over the snow like fairies or fawns. Well, maybe in this copycat, cookie-cutthroat world you need something that doesn't quite fit in. And darling, let it be us. I made it into the woods and kept going. Color around us bloomed without warning. The snow at my feet blinked like an eye. Blue, then green, then green, then blue. Slowly, my head dragged upwards. Of course, the Sullisk ship, it couldn't land in the trees. As I watched it hover, the calm blue flames beneath it surging back and forth, shouts began to echo through the woods. Mrs. Green! Ma'am! Mrs. Green! Both the police and the aliens had come for us. I sobbed out a laugh and pulled the baby closer, protecting her head from the ship's updraft. If we stayed quiet, here amongst the dense old trees, the police might not find us. They knew approximately where we were, but not precisely. Suddenly someone tried to take Daphne from me. I clung harder, and the unseen form relented, taking my shoulders instead, half carrying, half dragging me out of the trees and into the light of snow and flame, headlights and flashlights. I peered at my captor, George, the elderly guard from the base. He hadn't even looked at me when I went to the gates a few hours ago, only at the car. He would have wanted to join the search, so that if he couldn't clear his name of guilt at the oversight, he could clear his conscience by finding us alive. Robert staggered through the tangled grass and branches, snow spraying around him, and collided with all three of us, his arms around my shoulders. Trapped between us, Daphne yelped with surprise, her first sound in hours. Robert managed, I thought, I thought, you'll freeze, Robert. Where's your good coat? I couldn't find it, he wheezed in reply. Good God, what were you thinking? What are you doing? Have, have you lost your mind? A police car had parked in the field. They must have stopped on one of the ruts. Robert took Daphne and began to walk towards it. I was shivering now that I had stopped moving. It would be so nice to get into that car, to be safe and warm, and driven back to where they would take my baby and lock me up for a hundred years. Fuck. I jerked away instinctively, sending us both sprawling. 
George helped me up. Look, I said, look at them up there. The aliens, they came because I was right. Right about what, Robert cried. About Daphne, she's the ambassador. They came because General Gibson asked them to assist in the search, he shouted in reply, dragging us towards the car. Get in, you'll freeze. But she is, she is. Just believe me for once, I screamed into his face, wrenching Daphne from his hands, just once, about anything. All right, okay, sure, now please get in. I brought your pills, and there's a thermos on the... His next words vanished in a roar of displaced air. The Sullisk ship touched down on the field. My stomach churned. For the first time in months, I felt doubt. They did not come for me. They became because of the general, or because of Robert. Daphne was not the ambassador. It was someone else, and I really was a silly, wicked woman, or something else was wrong with my brain. The authorities should take her. They should put me away. You knew. The voice was ponderous, fuzzed a little with the translator's edge. The first alien emerged from the craft, followed by three more. I... I did know. Silence. No one else spoke. A few tufts of grass flamed under the snow, quickly crackled out. Nearby, someone honked their horn, perhaps at the service station from which I had just fled. Had everyone heard what they said? Had anyone? I stared up at the leading smudge image in the air, recalling what I had seen on the television. A heap of distorted glassy blocks, like pieces of coal viewed close. You sent the knowledge, I wanted to say, and everybody thought I had lost my damn mind. You never asked my consent. It was an enunciation. Is that where you got the idea? You never asked if it was all right. Did you ask her? Let us take her. We will raise her with us on the home ship to prepare. No. Sally, Robert yelled my name. They know what they're doing. They, I clutched Daphne tighter, backing away. Would they overpower me and take her? Over my dead body, they would. The aliens shuffled closer, crowding us, smothering us in a strange odor of electricity mixed with rotting grass. Stifled within the blankets, perhaps, Daphne squirmed and freed her face. Why her? Why not someone else? But they knew, and that is the one thing they gave to me, that I too would know. No, I said gently. Thank you. But she needs to know about humans first. When she's ready, she'll go with you. A long pause, perhaps while they consulted with each other in that language we couldn't yet speak. Then, finally. Acceptable. Thank you. I exhaled in relief. 
At last, I allowed myself to be bundled into the car and to sit in the warmth while they jerked and hopped us out of the ditch and eventually back to the road. I laughed when I saw how close I had been to the station the whole time, when I thought I had been running for hours. In the front seat, Robert wept. Later, I would ask him why, and he would deny ever having done it. But I would tell Daphne about this night, and I would leave every part in. Spring came, and the sun returned, and every week I poured over and mostly discarded invitations from the other wives in our mailbox. Robert helped me paint over the nursery, black with white stars. How's she gonna grow right in a black bedroom? He fretted. It's so dark. It's not dark, I said. He opened his mouth, closed it again. I picked up my brush and added another star. Robert Heinlein said delusions are often functional. A mother's opinions about her children's beauty, intelligence, goodness, etc. ad nauseum keep her from drowning them at birth. But what if her opinions are more than delusions? What if she not only believes her opinions are true, she knows it, the same way she knows the weight of the baby in her arms or how the stars move past the windows during a late night drive? One of the many things I love about Premie's work is how she carefully layers a story to hide the truth in plain sight, never once coming straight out to give a definitive answer. Check out her other stories. You won't be disappointed. And that brings us to our 100 character story winner this week by Drabblecast Forum member, Tired Guy. Here goes. The pot calls the kettle black. He calls the spatula Gary. The pot hates Gary and has plans to murder his whole family. 100 character stories. We call them twabbles. Try writing one yourself. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the twaddle section. You might be next week's winner. We post the winners out early each week on our Twitter feed. Follow the Drabblecast on social media at... Drabblecast. And that's our show, folks. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can share it for free all you like, as long as you don't change it or sell it. We're able to do this through the generous support of listeners such as yourself. Consider supporting the Drabblecast if you enjoyed our story this week. We're able to do this through the generous support of listeners such as yourself. If you enjoyed our story this week, consider supporting the Drabblecast. You can find donation options off our website at www.drabblecast.org under the tab Support the Show. From all of us here at the Drabblecast, we deeply appreciate your generosity. Special thanks to our episode cover artist this week, Susie O. Our program this week was brought to you by Samantha Henderson, Zimmerman Bledsoe, Bo Kyer, Melissa Harvey, Jason Smith, a glass of lukewarm lard with a hair in it, 
Tom Baker, Norm Sherman, and yours truly, Sandra O'Dell, reminding you, I don't think they know they're dead yet.